My name is Einat Wilf, and this is the We Should All Be Zionists podcast. Each week, I'll be reading one essay from my latest collection of essays book, We Should All Be Zionists, on issues facing the Jewish people and Israelis today, conflict, peace, religion, politics, past, present, and future. At the end, I'll be joined by columnist Blake Flayton for a discussion on the themes of the essay and how they apply to contemporary Israel and Jewish life. You can purchase your own copy of We Should All Be Zionists anywhere you get your books. Thanks for listening. Let's start. The Fatal Flaw That Doomed the Oslo Accords Op-Ed for the Atlantic, September 2018 The very feature of the agreement that was supposed to ensure its success was its undoing. It hardly seems possible that it's been 25 years since the signing of the Oslo Accords, that hopeful moment when peace between Palestinians and Israelis seemed at hand. In retrospect, the Accords seem less a triumph than an abject failure. Most observers trying to understand what went wrong fight over who to blame. The more constructive question is not who, but rather what to blame. What doomed the Oslo Accords is also what made them possible in the first place, constructive ambiguity. Given decades of war and bloodshed, the theory went, the two sides could not be expected to immediately settle their core disputes. An interim period of trust-building was required. It was better to remain ambiguous about the core issues which needed to be resolved, the negotiators assumed, rather than force the sides to adopt positions and make concessions which they might not be ready to make. This constructive ambiguity, imbued in each element of the Accords, proved to be utterly destructive. Instead of building trust and allowing the parties to adjust to the reality of the inevitable compromises which were necessary for peace, it merely allowed each side to persist in its own self-serving interpretation of what the Accords implied and to continue the very behavior which destroyed trust on the other side. And so, when the time came, a few short years later, to settle the core issues, the ensuing failure was all but inevitable. Throughout the interim years of the Oslo Accords, Israeli settlement activity was allowed to continue unhampered, with the number of settlers increasing from 110,000 on the eve of the Accords in 1993 to 185,000 in 2000 during the negotiations over final status to 430,000 today. That increase seriously undermined the notion that Israel was sincere about making way for a Palestinian state in the West Bank and Gaza. Palestinian leaders, meanwhile, continued pursuing what they refer to as the right of return. Their demand that ever-growing numbers of Palestinians be allowed to settle within the territory of pre-1967 Israel, which would render Jews a minority in an Arab state. 
There were nearly 3 million Palestinians registered with UNRWA as refugees in 1993, a number that increased to 3.8 million in 2000 and which stands at 5.3 million today. Palestinian leaders never dared face their people to tell them that as part of a final peace agreement, just as Jews would be expected to vacate their settlements east of the pre-1967 lines, Arab Palestinians be expected to renounce their claim to settle west of those lines. Like settlement building, this undermined the notion that Arab Palestinians had finally made their peace with the presence of a sovereign Jewish people in any part of the land. These two grand obstacles to peace, Israeli settlements and the right of return, each representing a form of territorial maximalism and the ideological negation of the other people's right to self-determination in the land, grew ever larger under the umbrella of constructive ambiguity. Jerusalem, too, fell prey to destructive ambiguity. Israeli leaders continued to to peddle the lie of a united Jerusalem, failing to prepare Israelis for the necessary partition of Jerusalem into an Israeli capital and a Palestinian one. And Palestinian leaders extended their decades-long rejection of the idea that Jews have any historical, cultural, national, or religious connection to Jerusalem. Twenty-five years after that hopeful Oslo moment, there is no need to rethink the end goal. But we need a new path to get there. The two-state solution remains the only option that recognizes the national rights of both peoples and provides a measure of justice to each. Whatever each side thinks about the invented nature of the other, both sides can agree that they each are equally deserving of living in a state where they can be masters of their own fate. To get there, the parties need to approach the negotiations not as a marriage, but as a divorce. Serious peacemakers need to let go of vague and nebulous concepts such as trust and confidence building and behave more like harsh divorce attorneys who spell out every detail. In place of destructive ambiguity, we need constructive specificity. President Trump, for example, would have done Israelis, Palestinians, and the cause of peace a greater favor if, rather than using the ambiguous term Jerusalem, he had recognized only West Jerusalem as the capital of Israel, while making it clear that he is open to recognizing Arab East Jerusalem as the capital of Palestine. President Obama would actually have served the cause of peace if he had coupled his promotion of the UN Security Council Resolution 2334, which made it clear that Jews should not settle east of the pre-1967 line, with an equally stringent resolution that made it clear that Palestinians could not settle west of the pre-1967 line through the demand of return condemning both forms of maximalism as illegitimate and harmful to negotiated and just peace. Repeated rounds of negotiations for a final status agreement, especially in 2000 with the Clinton parameters and in 2008 under Israeli Prime Minister Ehud Olmert, have served to specify parameters of a peace agreement between Israel and the Palestinians. It would require both parties to make considerable compromises, but offer both of them a viable sovereign state and the right of self-determination. A Palestinian state in the West Bank and Gaza, Jewish Jerusalem as the capital of Israel, 
Arab Jerusalem as the capital of Palestine, and a special arrangement in the Holy Basin to secure freedom of worship for all. Annexation of major Jewish settlement blocks adjacent to the Green Line in exchange for swaps of equivalent land. Removal of all other settlements from the West Bank and enabling Palestinians living in Jordan, Syria, and Lebanon to settle into a new state of Palestine, not into Israel. Had the Palestinians not walked away from those offers in 2000 and in 2008, there would today be two peoples settled in their homelands behind secure borders. Ultimately, sooner or later, all wars and conflicts end, with a bang or with a whimper. There is no reason to assume that the Israeli-Palestinian conflict is more intractable than others. But if we have learned anything over the past 25 years, it is that being ambiguous about the simple fact that neither side is going to have the entirety of the land does no one any favors. Israelis will have to accept the fact that they cannot build settlements all over the West Bank, and Palestinians will have to accept the fact that they cannot settle inside Israel in the name of return. The sooner both sides hear and internalize these simple, cold, hard truths, the sooner we will be able to speak of hope again. So, Einat, you just finished a piece on the Oslo Accords, which was published in The Atlantic in September of 2018, quite a decent amount of time after the Oslo Accords, after the protocols were initiated. And yet, even in 2023, five years after this article was published, and even more time after the Oslo arrangements, uh, they remain a lightning rod in Israeli society. There are constant arguments. There is really division uh, several decades after the assassination of Prime Minister Rabin about the thinking behind the Accords, the politics behind the Accords, whether or not they were a model for success or failure. And before we uh, get into the sort of contemporary ramifications of of the Accords, um, you know, I've, I've heard many, an academic, a politician, a political theorist, maybe, uh, say that the problem with the Accords was that we went in and we wanted to 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 solve all of these issues right away and 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 go into our corners and and argue over the details and then magically arrive at an agreement. But the way that this really needed to happen was, you know, economic cooperation, slow and steady building trust, building foundations, um building mutual understandings. And then once we get to the end, then the final status issues come to the forefront, like Jerusalem, like uh, the div- where the division will be, like return, etc., etc. This piece seems to argue both, but more on the side of no, 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 we don't need to be a happy couple. We don't need to see each other's narratives and come to some squishy agreement on that. We need a divorce. And we need to lay out on the table the very specific parameters that we are going to accept, we meaning Israel, as in reneging on the right of return. And only from that point can we start actual progress. As the Israeli-Palestinian conflict continues, which 
which strategy do you see as more effective should the opportunity to come to the table uh, reemerge once again? Oh, I have become even more determined that the only thing that will get us to peace is absolute clarity on what is expected of the sides without trying to sugarcoat any of it. If anything, I think I've become even more stringent in my description of the conflict. In this essay from five years ago, so this was 25 years for Oslo now, we're 30 years, uh, in this essay, I talk about the general idea that there are two peoples in the land, they should both have a state, uh, neither can have it all, so they need to be very clear on how they divorce and how they divide it. In the last few years, I've become much more clear in describing the core ideological conflict as one between Zionism and anti-Zionism, between the Jewish desire for sovereignty in at least part of the land and the Arab idea that the Jews possess no such right. And I have come to argue that if we are to have peace, uh, one of these ideas has to be defeated. So clearly, a lot of people want to defeat the idea of Zionism. So a lot of people believe that if the Jews forgo their state, that's when the conflict ends. And from American campuses to the Arab League, much is mobilized in order to get Zionism to end, to get the Jews to forgo any notion that they have the right, as all other peoples do, to govern themselves in their own state. I, of course, prefer what I think is the far better and more humane idea that the Jews will have their state and the Arabs will have their state and no one will have it in all of the land. But for that, the Palestinians have to let go of what has been their core identity, their core ideal, that the idea of a Jewish state in any part of the land is anathema and it's something that they cannot let stand. So I think that any other effort is wasted, anything, negotiations, economic development, even just getting people to meet with each other, uh, I think is a complete waste of time if we, not, if we do not address the core ideology. If we do not address Palestinian anti-Zionism as the thing that has to end. And yes, I remain completely committed to the idea that Israel should not build settlements and end this completely wasteful enterprise. But a lot of people are focusing on that, and almost nobody is focused on getting the Palestinians to transform their identity away from anti-Zionism into a constructive identity of building a Palestinian state next to Israel rather than instead of it. Yeah, you know, it it's just funny how the the Jews, the Jewish people love to all get their heads together and they love to deliberate and they love to think of, you know, different avenues to get to peace and to have discussions and to feel and to express emotion and to listen to each other's <laughs> narratives and perspectives. This is something that I grew up with in my mm -hmm. synagogue and also in at my college campus. We, the Jewish people, are always ready to sit down and 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 pour over all of these proposals and and pour over different ideas and how they clash together. But it really wasn't until I read your work 
that I began to realize before I open the door to anybody, before we have, you know, another beautiful conversation that can be posted <laughs> on social media to thunderous applause, I just have one question. And that is, do you accept that Zionism is a legitimate national movement and that there will be a Jewish state in part of the land between the river and the sea? And if I don't get an answer to that question within the first five or ten minutes of me that's generous, even five or ten <laughs> minutes, maybe five or ten seconds, of me speaking with someone, then it doesn't matter how much flowery language we use and how beautiful the sentiment is of, you know, two different worlds coming together. I mean, you, how many podcasts are there of, of people pontificating over these ideas? Yeah. But don't arrive at this central issue. It wasn't until I read your work that I realized it's not worth it. It's not worth it. Um, yeah. I want to uh, tie this into uh, the contemporary news a little bit because um, news recently broke that the uh, protocols from the first enactment of the Oslo Accords um, were, were released. This is 30 years um, after uh, this key cabinet meeting, which included Shimon Peres and Yitzhak Rabin and Ehud Barak. And basically what we learn from these, from these tapes, from these transcripts, is that the Israeli establishment at the time, who had their foot on the gas of making a deal with the Palestinians, were not, you know, starry-eyed advocates for peace. They didn't have any delusions about the people who they were uh, trying to negotiate with, and they actually had some reservations that this might all blow back in our faces. And as we know, that actually happened literally. Um, I want to read a little bit uh, the first paragraph or so. Um, this is um, Michael Buckner's report in the Times of Israel. He writes that, uh, the protocol reveals significant concerns by ministers, then Prime Minister Yitzhak Rabin, and especially then IDF Chief of Staff Ehud Barak, regarding the ramifications of the highly controversial agreement to the country's security as well as its cohesiveness amid mass protests by the right wing led by then opposition chief Benjamin Netanyahu. But the ministers eventually decided to give peace a chance despite the risks, believing there was no better alternative. 16 voted to approve the agreement and two abstained. And then later we hear that Shimon Perez was actually worried that the West Bank, should the current government uh, cease to exist, might turn into something like a Hamas-Iran situation, which is very prescient because those concerns exist today, uh, especially um, you know, as the PA's authority in, in the West Bank appears to be very fragile and dwindling. So my question after all of that is should we be surprised by these new reports of what went on in that cabinet meeting 30 years ago? Um, and if we are to be surprised, then why has the left sort of lionized these figures as, you know, champions of the land for peace formula and sort of figureheads for the give peace a chance movement? 
So we should only be surprised if we've bought into the remaking of Yitzhak Rabin after the assassination and Shimon Peres since the presidency as kind of teddy bears of peace, uh, as wide-eyed John Lennon peace-peddling, uh, you know, hippies. Because what you see in the protocols and what they really were, were hard-nosed, classic labor Zionist Israelis. Uh, we actually know enough by now that on the eve of his assassination, uh, Rabin's vision for what he would be willing to accept in a final agreement with the Palestinians was much, much less than what Netanyahu was willing to accept in later negotiations. Um, we see that Paris, who's been made into this person that knows nothing and understands nothing and uh, that he understood. He understood the risks. He understood what might happen. Uh, so what you see are people who are not thrilled. They don't think this is peace in our time. Um, they are operating amidst pressures. They definitely want to end Israel's involvement in the West Bank, they all mentioned the settlements as an obstacle, as something that has, that is a problem. Uh, they don't like it. In many ways, they concede, uh, part of it, but th they really, uh, don't talk positively about the settlements. They want to extricate themselves from the West Bank, from the Palestinians. They don't have the greater Israel vision, which was still very powerful in the 1990s. Um, and that's what we see in the protocols. And I think in that sense, they're valuable to bring us back to what really was the deliberation and not how it was made in retrospect. Right. And I mean, you you can't think of the opposition at the time people like Benjamin Netanyahu who of course you know it's 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 a famous speech that he gave on the balcony in Jerusalem where he says we will never let them divide the land you can't really think that they were so naive in thinking that Perez and Rabin were naive. They knew the political considerations being negotiated here. They knew the security implications of the accords. Why was it, then why did they choose that route of incitement and of rallying their base in such a passionate way against the people in the government? Was it simply for their own political careers to advance their own prospects? Or did they really think that this was going to be the destruction of the state. So I'll take it in two directions. First, I want to share that during the 90s, and this is when I'm a young adult and I'm voting for Rabin and voting for Labour and I'm thrilled that Ehud Barak goes to Camp David, and I really believed in the vision of peace and the new Middle East, um, Netanyahu's criticisms of Oslo I heard them, I remember, in the 90s as just these kind of terrible, sad uh, talkings of a person that belonged to the past. Mm -hmm. um, and I had the opportunity a few years ago to listen to some of his interviews about Oslo at the time, from the 90s. And I listened to them and I was like, these are very legitimate criticisms voiced in actually a very normal tone. 
but I didn't hear them at the time that way. So that was one thing that almost rattled me, the understanding that at the time, completely legitimate criticisms from the right, we heard them as these awful, dark incitement when they were not. So there's a big part of that, and I want to highlight that. But there was also the element of incitement, which which was part, actually, of Netanyahu's importing into Israel of the Finkelstein negative campaigning American politics of with us or against us, which is very much not in the parliamentary uh, system of Israel, and Paris will divide Jerusalem, which personally, as a former Jerusalemite, I hope he would have been. But just this notion of presenting the other side as completely evil, that was um, that was an importing of a certain kind of politics that I think plagues us to this day. But I look at that kind, and it also helps me reflect on the current moment to say how much of what we're doing right now in the current moment, both the government and the opposition, the left and the right, how much of making the other into the Antichrist, into something completely evil, how much of that are we doing? And how much are we actually listening to legitimate criticisms on both sides? Right. And you think that that might take some distance. So maybe in 15, 20 (laughs) years from now, we might look back at the current debacle over judicial reform and say that fundamentally, these were arguments that were within the confines of normal Israeli discourse. However, at the time, and I'm guilty of this because I do it every day, when I hear the commentary from the people who I follow online, those arguments seems so beyond the pale. Maybe I have hope based on what you said (laughs) now that in 15 years I'll look back and be like, God, I needed to, you know, chill out a little bit and, and, and recognize that, you know, there was a part of this, that incitement, that ideological incitement there, but overall Israelis are Israelis. And this was a, this was a part of the democratic process. I certainly don't feel that way right now, but maybe in the future. Um, I want to expand to the bigger picture because this is this is something that I think about every day and millions of Israelis think about every day. You talk about how the two-state solution remains the best solution that we have. It's not a great idea, but it's the best we have. It's like what Churchill said about democracy. It's a terrible system, but it's the best yeah. that we can do. Um, and you mention in your prescription of a two-state solution, that it has to be, you know, across the aisle. One side doesn't settle east of the green line, and one side doesn't settle west of the green line. And you mentioned how the Israeli public has always been practical, and should this response come from the Palestinians that we're done, we're not going to settle west of the green line, Israelis will do the same. Mm-hmm. However, there is a large and I would say growing part of the population who doesn't buy that, who says that we saw what happened when we evacuated Israelis from Gush Katif. There were no, there was no blood spilled then, but we can't be sure that that is going to happen again. 
you know, it was hell dragging Jews out of a synagogue when it was just, you know, a couple thousand. These are a couple hundred thousand. Um, especially if you mean dividing East Jerusalem, because as you know, as much as anyone, Jerusalem has this, you know, place in the Israeli, especially the religious Israeli imagination as only worth it if it's united. And, you know, the environs around Jerusalem, which by the way, East Jerusalem is 70 square miles around the city. We annexed all of that territory. People think that if you tell those Jews to move, there's going to be civil war. They're going to, you know, go to great lengths, even greater than Oslo, because the number of settlers has just grown from there, to resist. And that might be a catastrophe for the state of Israel. What do you say to those criticisms of, let's say, your book, The War of Return, where you say, no, the main point is the right of return? What do you say to those criticisms who say, no, the main obstacle is the hundreds of thousands of Israeli bodies in the West Bank? So the reason that despite my view that the settlements have been Israel's greatest mistake, most wasteful project, we could have been in such a different place if all the money and energy that we invested there would have been invested in the sovereign territory of the state of Israel, we would have been in a very, very different place. So, so much better. So wasteful, just completely useless uh, project. The reason I don't view it as the obstacle to peace remains the incontrovertible fact of the numbers that the Jews are a minuscule ethnic, religious, national, linguistic minority in an overwhelming Arab and Islamic Middle East. And that means that the Jews will always compromise. We might like that. We might not like that. I always say, if I remember someone asked me, uh, someone who's very much to the left, and he said, is there something that you think Israel will do that will make peace impossible? And my only answer that if we had a billion Jews. So, <laughs> yes, as long as we're such a small minority, it actually doesn't matter if there's uh, Meretz or Netanyahu or Ben Gvir. Ben Gvir could be the prime minister of Israel tomorrow and we would still evacuate settlements if there was a real opportunity for peace with the Arab world because the numbers don't lie. We're a minority. We're aware of our status of a minority. But I will also say that broadly speaking, I don't think the evacuation scenario in itself is necessary uh, in the sense that I think uh, a future agreement, should we ever come to the point that Palestinians forgo Zionism and we can have an agreement, forgo anti-Zionism and we have an agreement, I think Jews who care more about living in biblical land than they care about living under Jewish sovereignty should be allowed to be full citizens of Palestine. I just know that about five of them will exercise that because at the end of the day, with all due respect, and I don't have respect to the claim that the settlers are settling biblical land because it's biblical, they actually don't. 
There's biblical land in Jordan, and there's biblical land in Syria, and there's biblical land in Egypt, and in Lebanon, and in areas A and B. And somehow settlers don't settle there. They only settle where they have the protection of the Israeli Defense Forces. Mm -hmm. So my guess is we don't need an evacuation scenario. We just need to give settlers the option. Again, in a scenario where there is real and final peace and Palestinians forgo anti-Zionism, we need to give settlers, Jews who care about living in biblical land and want to do it under an Arab government, they should have the option. My guess is most of them will not want it. Right. And on top of that, you know, I think it's a it's a misconception to think that the majority of the settlers in the West Bank harbor this messianic, yeah. ultra-right-wing ideology, and that's the reason why they live in Ariel or Efrat. And yeah. that's simply not true. The majority of people who live out there did so, I believe, ignorantly, but it's the same nonetheless for economic opportunity, for uh, a standard of living that I guess they perceive as better to me living amongst, you know, hundreds of thousands of people who want you dead doesn't read as a better standard of living, but they see it as a better deal um, than, you know, living in, in, in the middle of Tel Aviv or in Jerusalem in, in big urban centers. Um, I think that's, you know, something more than 80% of the people yeah. living in the West Bank. And so those people, you can't imagine them, you know, taking up arms and, and you know, chaining themselves to a synagogue, especially if there was incentive, you know, the 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 carrot of maybe financial incentive to 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 pack up your stuff. And I'm not talking right now about the major settlement blocks that you specified. Yeah. You know, I'm I'm talking about more of the wildcat um, areas, uh, the carrot of financial incentive to move into sovereign Israel and then the stick of the army's not going to be here to protect you. Um I think it's very important to keep that in mind. What would you say, because there's obviously endless pontification over alternatives to the two-state solution, what would you say to the people who look at history and say that the birth of this conflict was there was uh, hundreds of thousands of refugees from the War of 1948, and unlike the Jewish state, which absorbed Jewish refugees from Muslim countries, the Arab states refused to do anything with the Palestinians. They kept them intentionally homeless uh, and stateless without the political means to express them, to, to, to support themselves, and if they did find themselves in other countries, they still don't get equal rights and exist under even an apartheid-like system based on their Palestinian ancestry. Um, you talk a lot about making peace with the broader Arab world. What would you say to the solution of Arabs, Arab countries, heads of state, finally saying, that's it, we're done, we're no longer fighting against Israel, we're no longer adopting anti-Zionism? Um, these Arabs who live in the West Bank are now our responsibility. Jews get to stay where they are, but vote in Israeli elections. And let's say Jordan says, pie in the sky, I know, but let's say Jordan slash Lebanon slash Syria one day says, these lands are now under our jurisdiction. These people will be voting in our national elections and will have rights, full rights. Is that a pipe dream? <laughs> I mean, I would say hallelujah, amen, I wish. <laughs> I mean, uh, there's no doubt that at this point, at least, 
Arab countries, some of them, but let's say Jordan, uh, are more trustworthy and established uh, than the Palestinian Authority or mm-hmm. Egypt. And if they were to take responsibility, Israel would happily hand it over. We need to remember that at the end of the day, the two-state solution was always the Zionist alternative. Mm -hmm. There was never a moment when the Arabs wanted a two-state because their priority was no Jewish state. So that means we're not going to have two states if one of them is Jewish. It's only the Jews who ever wanted two states because especially after the Holocaust, there were just not enough Jews to have a majority in the land given to the Jews between the river and the sea. So they said, okay, we'll just take part of it in order to have our state. Uh, So any way, shape, or form that allows the Jewish people to live in a state of their own where they are guaranteed a majority for the long term is acceptable to me. The details are not important as long as Arabs get some form of representation, sovereignty, whether in a separate state or as part of another Arab state. Those are details that, as far as I'm concerned, do not matter as much as the importance of extricating the Jewish state from being enmeshed with the Palestinians. Right. Definitely, I agree. My final question on this piece, because it does have to do with Oslo a great deal, is you were there, I was not. (laughs) Can you describe the Israeli psychology both after the first intifada and then after the second and how it changed and altered? Certainly. So the first intifada really served to, for a lot of Israelis, uh, to raise quite a few things. First, why are we still in the West Bank? You know, it's such a mess. Rabin did not campaign on getting out of the West Bank or making peace with the Palestinians. That was nowhere. He campaigned around changing priorities, which again would have been great if it had stayed that way in the sense of just change the priorities away from the West Bank. We don't want to invest in the West Bank. We don't want to do anything there. We want to invest in education. And indeed, teacher salaries rose under the Rabin government. We saw what it looked like to actually take money away from that wasteful project and put it in the Israeli public sector. That's what Rabin campaigned on and actually delivered. So, the first intifada really gave a lot of Israelis the sense of, why are we bothering? There was also this notion that the Palestinians were were a people fighting for freedom, for self-determination. We actually projected on the Palestinians our Zionist struggles, thinking that they, like the Jews, want nothing more than having their own state in the West Bank and Gaza. And if only they would have that, there would be peace. Which is why this ultimately became the basis for Oslo and for Camp David, because this is how we interpreted the first intifada, or at least enough Israelis interpreted it this way, a combination of just wanting nothing to do with the West Bank and Gaza, with the belief that the Palestinians want what we want. They want a state and self-determination. That is really the basis for the support for the labor governments in the 90s. The second intifada, of course, literally blew all that in the other direction, where we realized that even though the Palestinians faced concrete opportunities 
to end the occupation, have their state, what we thought they wanted, that they were a people fighting for independence, for a state of their own, that even when they had those opportunities, they walked away from them because they remained committed to their anti-Zionist vision of no Jewish state in any part from the river to the sea. And that, of course, led to the collapse of the left. If the first intifada led in many ways to the rise of the Israeli left under Rabin and uh, Barak, the second intifada led to its collapse. Because what is the left going to say? Uh, Let's negotiate with the Palestinians, but what they want is our own disappearance. I mean, that's not a very compelling political message. And in many ways, not until the recent protests around judicial reform that really became a protest about Israel's foundational Zionist vision, not until then did the left uh, get ultimately able to come to terms with its complete collapse in the early 2000s. So I know I said that was going to be my last question, but if we can do like a, a speed question just to just to end it off. So how does the the Israeli left recover from that failed vision of let's negotiate with the Palestinians? Is there hope at all? Two ways. First, acknowledge the complete misreading of what the Palestinians wanted, like really fully acknowledge it, uh, that at the core of the Palestinian identity is anti-Zionism, and there was no amount of concessions except not existing that Israel could make that would create peace, acknowledge that this remains the core of the Palestinian vision, and, and take steps still to extricate Israel from this project of enmeshment with the Palestinians that the extreme right is pursuing, delineate a border, what I call yes to the occupation, no to the settlements, end Israel's wasteful investment in the settlements, draw a border, perhaps get the U.S., Europe, Arab countries to tacitly accept that this is Israel's final border. I talk about annexing about 4% of the West Bank, where most settlers live, renounce any claims to the rest, leave the military, and in parallel, focus on the issues that are now coming to the fore through the protests mm -hmm. of secularism, the original Zionist vision for Israel, extricating ourselves from the West Bank would be a great step towards uh, kind of going back to Israel's foundational secular Zionist vision, uh, taking head on the question of the Israeli Haredi way of life and the fact that it cannot continue as it does. Uh, there's a lot to revive the left, but it begins with acknowledging the complete misreading of the Palestinian goal. Right. And just from what you said, it's 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 also sort of like a making sure that it's seen as a Zionist goal, oh, yes. you know, to, to, to take these steps rather than we're not doing this for the Palestinians. We're doing this for the own character of our state and for the prosperity of our state. And not thank you so much. I really appreciate the conversation. And um, to our listeners, if you are about to get involved in a discussion or an argument on the Oslo Accords, uh, you better read this chapter, um, The Fatal Flaw That Doomed the Oslo Accords, and also the entire book, We Should All Be Zionists. Uh, available anywhere you get your books because we'll uh, we'll have lots to discuss next week as well. Thank you so much again. Thank you.